Welcome to CII's podcast, The Voice of Corporate Governance. While this podcast is open to the public, the majority of our work is only accessible to current CII member organizations. If you would like information on becoming a member of CII, please visit our website at cii.org or contact our Director of Membership, Melissa Fader, with her email, melissa at cii.org. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Professor Daniel J. Taylor, Associate Professor of Accounting at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. On November 10th, Professor Taylor, together with over 30 other accounting and financial economic scholars, filed a memorandum as a Makei Curiae in the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York in the case of George Assad versus Emerge Technology Acquisition Corp. Welcome back, Professor. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. Always happy to uh, always happy to join. Uh, before we get get into the weeds, I guess I should I should issue some disclaimers that uh, you know the the podcast on the podcast I'll be speaking about my views, which may or may not represent the views of all 30-plus signatories on our uh, amicus brief. So, Professor, like CII, you and your colleagues filed a friend-of-the-court brief in the case of Assad versus Emerge. So what motivated you and your colleagues to file a brief in this case? That's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, let me, let me paint the, the picture broadly as opposed to a specific case, because what was our motivating factor was broad concerns as opposed to um, something very, very specific. Uh, so in the case, the, the, the plaintiff is alleging that effectively SPACs are investment companies, not operating companies, and need to register with the SEC as such. And if that was in fact true, many claim that it would effectively end the SPAC pipeline of late. So basically the plaintiffs in the case and in similar case against Go Acquisitions and, and Pershing are threatening the SPAC ecosystem and, and associated intermediaries who derive revenue from the, from the ecosystem. So that's kind of the outline of, of, of the case and the investment versus operating company uh, distinction. Now, why? we got involved or why I got involved was I've done a lot of work on insider trading on disclosure on 10 B five one plans. And, and in many cases um, I, what I've found is, is that there's a wedge between how uh, economists think about the issues and think about the transactions and how lawyers think about the transactions and think about the issues. Now I'm not a lawyer and I don't pretend to be one, uh, and I admit that I do not understand all of the legal precedents and legal nuances at work. But what I do understand um, is a few critical arguments that appear to be uh, used by the defense or invoked, not even specifically by this specific defense, but in general of, of those who defend SPACs as operating companies, um, or excuse me, defend SPACs as, um, as operating companies. And it basically revolves around how investors perceive SPACs. Do they perceive SPACs as operating companies? Do they perceive SPACs as investment companies? And, and are SPACs, in fact, paying compensation to their directors? Um, so people have you know, gone on record. Um, Bill Ackman's on, on record as saying that, this, that SPACs don't pay 
compensation to the directors. And he's on record as saying that his directors work for free. Um, at, at the same time, people on record are saying that, you know, the SPACs are valued as operating companies and, and not as an investment company. Why would you value this as an investment company? So our brief lays out and explains why both of those arguments are economically incorrect. And, you know, I, I want to be clear, this isn't really my, my colleagues and I on Mimikas don't really perceive this as a he said, she said uh, debate. This is a case of in my opinion, lawyers not really understanding the basic economics of these transactions, and as a result, misconstruing the economic substance of what's happening in SPACs. So again, I want to say I'm not a lawyer, I don't pretend to be one, and I think in, in many of these cases as it concerns SPACs, there are some lawyers pretending to be economists. And that's why we really wrote uh, the brief to educate the court and educate the public um, on the accounting and finance and economic perspective on, on what's going on uh, in, in SPACs and how that diverges from, you know, what lawyers may or may not be saying. So, Professor, as you indicated, your brief focuses on two issues uh, relevant uh, to the eMERGE Special Purpose Acquisition Company and to SPACs generally. The first issue addressed in your brief is how investors value SPACs. So can you talk a bit about this? and how this sheds light on whether investors perceive SPACs to be operating companies or investment companies. Right, so think about how we, we, we typically think of um, uh, what we would say is valuation, how we would value an operating company, a company that sells goods or services. Right, so the traditional way of valuing an operating company, and this is what's taught the undergrads and the MBA students is to use a, a discounted cash flow model based on forecast of income or, or cash flow that's generated by the sale of goods or services. Right. So put simply, an investor estimates what profits a business will make in the years to come from the sale of goods or services, discounts these estimates to reflect the risk and inconvenience of waiting, and then basically sums up sums up the results. And you know, some people say, well, you, oh, you can't use that method for companies without any revenue. And that, that's not correct. That method can be used for young companies, even companies without current sales or revenue, so long as a range of possible future scenarios can be realistically forecasted. Right. So let's talk about those, those forecasts. So how do, where do these forecasts come from? Well, investors will often use information about the TAM or the total addressable market for the company's goods or services, right? So we might have a small biotech company that might be developing a cure for cancer. Now, it might not have a current product, might not have any associated sales, but we know what its objective is. Its objective is to uh, get a cure for cancer and then sell the cure for cancer. And based on its, its objectives, we can then say that you know, the total addressable market for its product is gonna be extremely large. Uh, because a hypothetical product would address a very large market uh, of patients. Consequently, even before the company has developed the cure or executed sales agreements, we can nonetheless forecast what the future income would be and take into account the probability of successfully developing the cure, right? So our forecast will reflect both the probability of the successful cancer drug development as well as the income and sales that a successful uh, drug development uh, one, one produce. And this is one reason why the discounted cash flow approach has become so standard, 
because it, it can be useful, uh, you know, to value any and all um, operating companies. So that's kind of how we think of or we teach operating company, uh, operating company evaluation. Now, then the question is, well, okay, can we apply that methodology to SPACs? So if the answer to the question is yes, we can apply that same methodology to SPACs, then we can then say, okay, well, yes, investors do in fact value SPACs as operating companies using the same methodology. Alternatively, you know, we can say, well, no, investors cannot apply that to SPACs, in which case that leads to the question of, well, then how in fact are investors valuing SPACs? So in, in this particular case, in our brief, we basically lay out that investors cannot apply the standard discounted cash flow approach to SPACs prior to the announcement of their merger target. Without knowledge of the merger target, you know, the models for valuing operating companies are just inapplicable and irrelevant in some sense, because you can't forecast sales or income or even estimate the total addressable market without knowledge of the specific goods or services that the company is going to sell, right? So if the SPACs are to be valued, you can't use the traditional methodology that we, that we teach for valuing operating companies. Well, that, that raises the question then of, of how are they valued? And I think a lot of the recent evidence out there, both academic and is that the, they're valued based on the securities that they hold in the investment trust. Right. So in a SPAC, you've got some money. The money is, is placed in an investment trust. And then based on the assets in that investment trust, that'll value, you can value the, the SPAC as a result of those assets. And what's so unique about SPACs, as distinct from normal operating companies, is that SPACs allow for the redemption. Right. So you ha can have uh, shares in your SPAC and then ask to receive a pro rata share of the trust account and redeem your shares uh, for assets in the trust account rather than hold the stock through the, through the merger. So not only do investors and SPACs have this redemption option, which affects value differently than we might value an operating company, but you know, most investors actually, in fact, do redeem uh, their shares. At least academic evidence suggests that they redeem their shares. Right. So for the typical SPAC investor, the cash flow that they receive isn't derived from, you know, sale of goods or services or income, but rather derived from these assets that are held in the trust account. And that's, you know, that's not how you value operating companies. There's no, uh, there's no option to redeem your shares. There's no pool of money that you can get access to. Uh, and, and so things are just are radically different. And instead, the way you would value the SPAC is similar to how you, you, know, you value an investment fund based on the pool of money uh, that's, that's there and the premium or discount uh, of the market value uh, or the net asset value. So it's, it's really inconsistent. SPAC valuation is really inconsistent with how we, how we value, uh, value operating funds. So, Professor, the, the second issue you focused on in your brief is how the sponsors of SPACs are compensated. So can you explain to our listeners how SPAC sponsors are generally compensated and what's unique about it? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. Uh, you know, one of the things uh, that was so interesting about, uh, you know, working with so many other scholars out there, you know, 30 plus scholars, is those of you that work with academics know that academics aren't shy about sharing their, 
their opinions and they all like to edit things, edit documents. So I had 30 co-authors on this. And one of the fun things about it was seeing emails when people would read it uh, and, and, uh, or edit it and put in margin comments like, this is unbelievable, or how come this isn't considered compensation? Like, this is ridiculous. What exactly is going, you know, like, how can this possibly be? So the compensation is, is really fascinating simply because, you know, of the wedge. I mean, it really highlights the wedge between economics of the transactions and, uh, and, and the current, you know, legal interpretation. Okay, so by way of background, right, the way this, this works is that, um, you know, at the outset, a SPAC will issue Class B founder shares to its sponsor. Okay, and these founder shares are not publicly traded. They are not available to the public. If the merger is successful, so SPAC finds a merger target and successfully merges with the target, then those founder shares convert typically to a 20% interest in the post-merger entity. All right, so just to recap, we've got these class A stock that's traded, and then we've got these class B founder shares that only the sponsor has. And those shares will convert, if successful, if the merger is successful, to 20% interest in the post-merger entity. All right, now, keynotes not available to the public, and they've got this contingency. Uh, you know, so if the merger is not successful within the time frame of the SPAC, that the SPAC sets forth, then the shares will expire worthless. The Class B founder shares will be worthless. So what do we think the shares are worth at the time they are sold to the sponsor? Okay, so typically it's the case that the shares are bought by the sponsor for less than one penny per share, right? So say for argument's sake, and in, in, in this particular case, in the eMERGE case, $25,000 for 10 million shares. Okay. So that comes out to, again, less than, a, less than a penny per share. Now, if successful, that less than a penny per share, or that $25,000, will be worth 20% of the resulting firm. So if the resulting firm after merger is worth half of a billion, meaning 500 million, then the shares will be worth 100 million. Okay. So here's, here's the, you know, the points to, to make here is that the, the claims out there by Ackman, by, by others, by the defendants here, is that these transactions, that sale of those that Class B uh, founder shares to the sponsor is not compensation. And our brief basically lays out reasons why, from an economic perspective, that's incorrect. So the reason why it's incorrect is that, you know, the difference between the fair value of those Class B shares and the price that they were sold represents value that the company could have received had it sold the securities on the open market instead of giving the shares to the sponsor. This is why, in fact, we expense stock options and share-based compensation to employees. That's why it's an expense, because it's something that the company foregone or forewent by giving it to the employees rather than selling it to the open market. Same thing in this particular instance. The Class B shares could have been sold on the open market, and instead they were uh, sold to the sponsor. So then the wedge between the sales price to the sponsor and the fair value 
represents compensation. You know, this discount that the company sort of lost out on by selling it to the sponsor. So then the question is, well, what's the fair value of these shares? Because they, we agreed they're contingent. They're contingent on post-merger entity. Now, some would say, well, the existence of a contingency means that they have no value at the time they are issued. But that, that's, that's simply false. We've used Black-Scholes. There are advanced models out there for valuing equity compensation and contingent compensation. And those get recorded on, on financial statements you know, all the time. So the existence of a contingency does not mean that it doesn't have fair value or that it doesn't hold economic value at the time that it's, it's uh, sold to the, to the sponsor, right? So the natural analogy here is stock-based compensation. So we're not, I don't want to get into an actual valuation exercise that would be, you know, a very fact-intensive analysis, but, you know, we can sort of talk through some basic, you know, basic principles about how you value these things, right? So what you would do is you take the, the probability of a successful business combination you know, everything here is subject to assumptions, just like share-based compensation that gets recorded as an expense. You take the probability of the successful uh, business combination. You'd multiply that by the dollar amount or the value of what you think the post-merger entity will be worth. And then you multiply that by the amount of ownership that those shares would convey in the post-merger entity, right? So if you've got 50% likelihood of a successful merger and the post-merger entity is gonna be 500 million, right? And the shares convey a 20% interest, right? Then you've got 0.5 times 500 million times 20%, that gets you to $50 million, right? Roughly $50 million. So then the gap, between what the sponsor paid for the shares, only 25,000, less than a penny per share, and the fair value of roughly 50 million then represents compensation. Okay, compensation that was given to the, to, the, to the sponsor because the shares were sold at a discount relative to their fair value, right? And what's so fascinating about this is, you know, there are then arguments that, okay, well, Maybe that's compensation to the uh, sponsor, but what about the directors of the SPAC? And I'm I am really fascinated by you know the the directors on on the SPAC because some of these SPACs have set things up differently. In one case, um, not the emerge case, the sponsor of the SPAC then gifted the shares to the directors of the SPAC. Right, so this would be like a company says, oh, we're not going to pay. The CEO compensation. We're going to pay the the CEO's spouse some compensation, and then the spouse then turns around and discloses that they gifted what they received from the company to the CEO. Well, it's, that's still compensation, right? The CEO still economically benefits. Same thing with the SPAC directors. In this particular case, it was disclosed that all of the SPAC directors have pecuniary interest in the sponsor, and so if the compensation to the sponsor increases the value of the sponsor, then that is, you know, the, the directors have a pecuniary benefit in that. Uh, and they also benefit uh, from compensation that the sponsor receives. It, it, it's, it's fascinating to me because think about it this way. Suppose I'm the CEO of a company I own, and I own a consulting business and the company pays my consulting business a very, very, very favorable amount. 
you know, well in excess of market rates. You look at it and be like, wow, they really gave a sweetheart deal to the CEO's consulting company. But then the CEO didn't draw a salary. Would we say that the CEO was not compensated? Economically, we would say, yes, the CEO was compensated. It was embedded in what was paid to the, paid to the consulting company. And by virtue of having an interest in the consulting company, the CEO was, in fact, uh, compensated and, and benefits. So I, I'm just very skeptical, and, and the signatories are very skeptical of these arguments that the sponsors and compensated directors are, are compensated. And when someone tells you that they work on a corporate board, a corporate for-profit board for free, you know, you, you should be, I would say you should be skeptical of that claim. Um, sure, work on a nonprofit board for free, but working on a, a corporate board for free, you know, be skeptical. There's, there's probably an angle uh, going on there. And this is, this is the other thing that was sort of fascinating for me is, you know, are the directors independent and independent of what? And so to me, it was interesting to learn that all the directors of the SPACs had interest in the SPAC sponsor. And so I would interpret that, and academically, we would interpret that as saying that the directors of the SPAC are not independent of the sponsor. They may be independent from being employees of the SPAC but they don't seem to be independent of the SPAC sponsor. Uh, and so that was just something that, 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 that we noted and that, and that many of the scholars were somewhat surprised at that because typically we have board independence requirements uh, to align the interests of the board with that of shareholders. But um, in this case, it appears that the interests of the board are aligned with the SPAC sponsor, which may or may not correspond with the, with the shareholders. So, Professor, if I'm if I'm the judge in the Assad versus Emerge case, what would be the single most important point from your brief that I should take into consideration in my ruling on the defendant's motion to dismiss this case? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not the judge, and I've already disclaimed I'm not a lawyer, uh, and I can't really say what our brief means to the various legal arguments and doctrines that I don't really understand. You know, admittedly, don't really understand. And so we wrote the brief without having in mind a specific legal outcome for the case. Rather, what we wanted to push back on was this notion that the case or that these arguments have no merit, right? And so our brief was really designed to educate the court and the public and to point out that many of the arguments being advanced by the defense and by, in general, defend, defenders of SPACs as operating companies are just economically incorrect at a fundamental level. You know, again, I don't pretend to be a lawyer and I don't think lawyers should pretend to be economists or accountants. And, you know, I don't want to cast shade too much, throw too much shade on people, but I kind of think that's what's going on here. I do think this pushes the boundaries of what non-economists are claiming is actually happening in these transactions, and those claims don't faithfully represent the economic substance. So what I would say is this, you know, if it's the case that how investors value SPACs are pivotal to whether they should be considered operating companies or investment companies, you know, it's pretty clear that SPACs are not operating companies and therefore investment companies. But that may, that may not, the case may not end up revolving around that. Um, and it, it may also revolve around whether the directors received a pecuniary benefit from their work in the SPAC. Did they receive a pecuniary benefit 
Absolutely. Did they receive economic compensation? Absolutely. They benefited. No one works on a corporate board for free, right? There's an angle there. So that's really what we wanted to what we wanted to point out. And if the judge looks at those and, and agrees with us and says, you know what, I, I agree, but I just don't think that 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 you know that those are pivotal to the case, then so be it. Um, but we wanted to sort of get get the facts and get the economics of the transactions on record. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank Professor Daniel J. Taylor, Associate Professor of Accounting at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.